uh, I think there's going to be quite radical change coming to the architectural discipline over time. And so these are skills that, that every architectural student, I think, should be, should be acquiring. What are those skills? Well, you're going to learn that in this episode. Today we have with us Keen Wormsley and it's an absolute honor to have him on because he has been part of Autodesk for more than 25 years. I think he's going to reach 25 in a month or so. So congrats to you Keen for completing 25 awesome years at Autodesk. He now heads research and is part of the research team where he works on emerging areas related to design technology, generative design, virtual and augmented reality, and the Internet of Things. So he's pretty much at the forefront of technology in the AEC industry. And we're going to learn quite a ton from this episode. Keen is going to be sharing his journey, how he got started, how he joined Autodesk, and the various experiences he's had over the years working at Autodesk. He's also, in fact, worked in Bangalore. So we get to listen to his story at Bangalore as well. And then we dwell into the technical stuff. We talk about Autodesk Forge and the rise in web development frameworks. Imagine being able to use CAD in your web browser. How cool would that be? We talk about generative design, Autodesk Refinery, digital twins and neural networks, artificial intelligence and how Autodesk is leveraging AI. And we also talk about remote working, playing both a technical and managerial role and Keen's experience at Autodesk University, Las Vegas. And of course, some great advice for young architects. So there's a lot to learn in this episode. We've written extensive show notes as well which will be available on arkgyan.com slash 42 in case you want to go to relevant links. And talking about links, Keen also has an awesome blog where he shares a lot about the technology, his time at Autodesk, personal life, and a lot of cool travel tales as well. You can head to keenw.com. That's K-E-A-N-W.com. Now, without further ado, this is episode number 42 with Keen Wormsley. Let's go. About to enter the Young Podcast. Young Podcast. India's first and very own architecture podcast, where you'll hear the insights, experiences, and journeys from India's leading architects. No matter what your skill level is, together, we'll build on our knowledge and share architecture's greatest stories ever told. Now, here's your host, Manish Paul Simon. All right. Um, before we get, jump into various uh, tangents in this episode, give us a brief background about yourself and how you got into this field and uh, what made you uh, stick on with Autodesk for so long? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, so a little bit about me. I mean, I, I grew up in the UK. Um, I'm actually half Indian, so that's one of the reasons why I moved to India for a few years, which which I believe we'll be talking about a bit later. Right. Um, but I grew up in the UK, and I studied computer science um, at, at you know through my, throughout my studies. But then when I got to university, it was it was my main subject. Mm. Um, I also uh, really enjoyed languages, not just computer languages, but but uh, you know French and German. Um, mm-hmm. So right. for me, it was always always quite an important thing to to study 
to to study abroad and then to work abroad as well in a ideal in a French speaking environment. Mm-hmm. So what what happened was that as I was going through my schooling, um, first of all, there's there's a local engineering company that that had just installed. Um, well, actually, when I first started to work for them, uh, it was to, they they needed somebody to come in and help um, translate their engineering calculation programs, which were which were running on I think the a Commodore PET or something like that, um, and they needed somebody to come and translate those to GW Basic running on a PC. So that was really just literally typing in code from printouts and fixing a few um, things where the, the, the languages differed, but it was very, very simple. Um, but while I was doing that as a student, I guess I must have been like 14 or 15, maybe 16, um, they got their first CAD stations. So they had three AutoCAD seats in, at this company. Uh, and they said, well, would I be interested in you know, taking a look at what it would take to, to get things running, you know, and, and to sort of do some customization for the drawing office. And this was so in the 90s, I, right? Yeah, this was this was in the mid. So, I mean, I it would have been the early 90s at this stage. Um, so I think AutoCAD release 10 was probably the first one I started working with, for sure, release 11. Um, but, you know, reading through the Autolisp manuals and understanding how how to, to, to do things. Um, so that was really, really interesting. Um, then as I kind of went through my university studies, I, I studied at a university in the UK called uh, down in the southeast of the UK called the University of Kent in a city called Canterbury. And one of the reasons why I wanted to go there was that it was a, it was literally called the European University. It was the most European uh, the most well connected with Europe, if you like, and they often did um, exchange programs with with uh, universities on on mainland Europe, and and I joined um, a computer science degree program called um, informatics, mm-hmm. and this informatics degree was actually a. a a bachelor's degree in the UK um, with a so it's so it's three years would be spent in the UK, but there was a sandwich year between the third and fourth years, if you like, studying in a university in Europe, um, studying in the language of that country, uh, doing the exams with with students from that country. Um, so I, I chose to to go to Paris for that year and and basically ended up after after that year getting a, a degree from the French university as well. Mm-hmm, nice. Um, so I ended up coming back to the UK, finishing up my degrees. But throughout those studies, I, I was I was kind of working on these, you know, as part time um, during holidays and, and things on at this company. And they also put me in touch with a with a, a, a company in Peterborough in 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 the east of England, where um, who was actually a software developer working with Autodesk technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they would, if you like, an independent software vendor or, or third-party software developer uh, working on document management solutions, but also early 2D parametrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got in, involved with them um, because they uh, had sold some software to this engineering company and I was working with it and I was bothering them with lots of questions. And at some point they reached out and said, well, you know, would you like to come and get, have a summer job with us as well? So I did some work with them through my studies. And eventually by the time I got to my fourth year at university, um, I got this out of the blue email from somebody at Autodesk saying, well, would you like, I'm, I'm you know, I'm setting up a team, uh, 
with full of at the time you could call them developer evangelists it was actually a term that came later developer advocates also came much later but just developer support engineers who are giving training and and presentations at conferences so it's a very um uh, communication-centric role relative to a traditional software development role. Mm-hmm. Um, so it definitely appealed to me. And so the, the, this this guy, um, my first manager, it turned out, sort of said, we're setting up this team. Would you be interested in coming along and interviewing? And I emailed back straight away, yes, 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 yes. Uh, you know, where, where do I come? <laughs> um, so uh, that that ended up being the start of this this journey at Autodesk. Um, it, it you know I, I joined Autodesk as a developer support engineer based in in the UK. Mm-hmm. I worked in our Guildford office for two and a half years before I was able to transfer across to Switzerland in 1998. Uh, I'd, I'd been working on a variety of technologies by then. Um, you know, both on some some early document management technology we had called uh, Autodesk Work Center. I was, I was working with, with AutoCAD quite heavily as well, of course, another GIS product called Autodesk World. So there's a, a number of, of tools kind of came came across my, my path. And actually, it was then that I started with um, what, what at the time was called AutoCAD Architectural Desktop, mm-hmm. um, which became, you know, sort of uh, AutoCAD Architecture. Uh, anyway, so that, it's um, I, I, I was working very heavily with that as well. So that was my first sort of introduction to the architectural space, other than working with sort of base AutoCAD, I guess. Um, and so then I was in Switzerland from, from 98 to 2000, and I, was, I loved it. You know, I really didn't have any great desire to, to move away, but a job opportunity came up to, to manage the, the equivalent team that I was in in Europe right. in the US. Um, So that meant moving across to California. Um, So I applied for it and ended up getting it and went across there in 2000 and had a really interesting time. You know, that was at the tail end of the dot-com boom. The world was changing a lot as well because, you know, if you remember in 2000, uh, George Bush II got elected um, and then uh, September the 11th happened in yeah. 2001, you know, the invasion of, of Afghanistan and Iraq. So there was a, it was a very interesting time to be in the U.S. Um, it wasn't um, – for, for me, it became clear – for me and my, my, my wife, who moved across with me to the U.S., um, it became clear that it wasn't the place we wanted to start a family. You mm. know, we mm. felt very European and had our roots there. So uh, in about 2002 – we started to realize, you know, we've done a couple of years. We don't have to, it's probably not going to be five years. Mm-hmm. Um, let's look for something back in Europe. Uh, and I started to, to investigate the possibility of moving back. And in the end, what happened was that I was given the chance. Well, so there wasn't a job directly in Europe, but um, the manager of, of our or director of our consulting group at the time came to me and said, well, I don't have a job for you in Europe, but if you go to India for two years, um, then help to help us set up a consulting team there, then you can move wherever you want in the world after you're done. You nice. know, that's fine. Move you wherever you want to go. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, you know, where is it? And they said, well, Bangalore. And I said, oh, okay. You know, I have family in Bangalore. Um, my grandmother was living there, uncles oh, and right. aunts. Okay. Uh, so it actually turned out to be a really interesting opportunity for me to connect with my family there. Mm-hmm. Um, so as it was in, in the, the end of 2003, my wife and I got on a plane and, and headed across to Bangalore. Um, and 
it, that became really interesting. So that was a, a two-year placement there, um, you know, working in the office there, helping build this this team. Uh, one one slight twist on the whole situation was that as we arrived in in Bangalore hmm. within the, within a few weeks, we found out that my wife was expecting our first child. Okay. Um, so that was uh, that was definitely a twist um, mm-hmm. in the sense that we had to make a decision. Well, do we cut things short? Do I travel? You know, does my wife go back to Switzerland and I travel backwards and forwards, or you know, what's the best way? And in the end, we decided to to sort of have the baby uh, to stay in India and have the baby in in Bangalore um, rather than do all that travel. So that was a um, yeah, that was really interesting. Just from a personal perspective, uh, there's a lot of challenges, of course. So you're Bangalorean, so you know Malia yeah. Hospital. You know, Malia it's a hospital, great hospital. Yeah. yeah. So, so, but that's where our, our first our first baby was born back in uh, 2004. Um, yeah. So, so that was personally. You know, there's lot lots of professionally. It was a whole another story, but that's a. Mm. Uh, yeah, we can get to that. Um, but yeah, so skipping forward a little bit on that, I then moved back to Switzerland again in 2006. Uh, th- at that point, I was um, managing the worldwide team. So, so I'd done this stint managing the Americas. I did this stint ma- managing Asia-Pacific Asia and building this team. And then after that, I became senior manager for that particular group, which was mm-hmm. the DevTech group or Developer Technical Services group. Uh, which was a team of about 20 or 30 people worldwide um, who, who are basically providing technical services for our developer network members. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a really, really great team, still is a great team. Most, Mostly these days that they're focused on Forge. Um, but mm-hmm. so I did that job as senior manager for that group. And it was actually in 2006, becoming senior manager, I was starting to get a little further away from our customers. So I decided right. to to uh, start start the blog that I do today still, um, just to get get more connected with the community and the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the years, that as a kind of a, a, a side activity became something that I appreciated and enjoyed a lot more than, than day-to-day management activities. So I ended up, and it, and it opened a lot of um, doors within Autodesk as well. I ended up being able to work with our CTO's office, uh, with our various product groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it gave me quite a lot of exposure and led to, a, to the opportunity to, to switch across from a, from, a te- from a management role into a senior technical role within our AutoCAD team, which is not a very traditional career path by any means. Um, but it proved to be one that I, that I enjoyed a lot. Yeah. Awesome. So you must have seen the entire evolution of uh, Autodesk being there, right? Well, to some degree. I mean, I joined in 95, mm-hmm. um, which is just when, you know, AutoCAD was already a very well established product selling, selling very well. It was around that time that we started the whole sort of verticalization strategy for, for AutoCAD and Autodesk to, to separate into market groups and, and have you know, a group focused on AC, a group focused on GIS, um, a group focused on mechanical. So that was when we were really starting to do discipline-specific technology. So, so that it was that was very interesting. Um, and my job through those years, in many ways, was to help um, people or external developers become more effective with uh, using our tools for these different different markets. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, I have seen a lot of change. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Um, it remains to be, you know, I mean, it's, I haven't quite hit 25 years. That's coming up in August, but right, it, it right. definitely remains to be a, a, 
a company that that I I believe in. I, I think what we're doing, um, or what our customers do with our technology, is extremely motivating to me. So you mm-hmm. know, whenever I see the sort of things that people do with our software, it it, it it's inspiring. So it's easy to to work for a company that's in this space and whose customers are doing these things more so than I would, you know, working for a bank or something like that. That's not the same. You, I wouldn't get the same motivation level. I don't think. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, what kind of role did you like the most? Was it more of the technical role or more of the manage or uh, managerial role? Um, it's really, that's a good question. Overall, um, I mean, I, I really enjoyed, de- you know, developing people, hiring, developing, coaching people. Um, I, you know, I, that for me was extremely important. But in the end, what I've found is a really interesting compromise. So uh, moving into a technical role, which was more hands-on and challenging and, and actually gave brought me more satisfaction in terms of really sort of building things that are a bit more tangible. Mm. Um that was certainly more um, important to me, I think, at a core level. But I was able to find, to some degree, some of the pleasure that I had as a manager by mentoring people. So actually very very active in, in, our, in Autodesk's internal mentoring program. Mm. So I have a, at any, any time maybe, you know, two to four mentees who, whom I, you know, I meet from time to time to, to talk about their career. And this is kind of an ideal scenario for me because I always find that I learn a lot from these interactions, especially because very often they're in parts of the company that have no direct connection with what I do. So I, I really get get a lot of exposure to the sort of things and the sort of issues that people face elsewhere in the company. Uh, but it also gives me the chance to exercise the, that kind of managerial muscle without necessarily having the day-to-day responsibilities of managing a team. Um, so it, I think in some ways that's the best of both worlds for me. Yeah. All right. And, uh, do you feel that you must've picked a lot on architecture being part of uh, developing architecture software? Um, I actually, I saw it's, that's a difficult one. Um, I, I, you know, I've, I've come to appreciate a, a lot about the, the, the discipline, but I would, I, I would never say that I have real, um, architectural knowledge. Hmm. Um, I, 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 you know, that's not, you know, I don't have that background. It's not fair for me hmm. to, 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 to make that claim. But at the same time, um, I, I very much appreciate working with, with architects, um, and, you know, people who are rethinking and designing the world. I think it's really motivating for me to, 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 and, and also I find it a privilege, you know, to, to engage with people who have this different skill set from myself. I mean, mm. I'm able to some degree talk the same language, but my background is very different. And I think it's, it's, it's that kind of cross-disciplinary interaction that, that, is, that is very meaningful as well. So I work very closely with people with an architecture background within the company, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be so bold as to claim that I have any real knowledge of, of you know, any, any meaningful knowledge of, of architecture. All right. But uh, there are a lot of architects these days who are taking up a software development role, right? Yes, exactly. So, and I think that's also my, um, part of my role as well is to inspire them to take the plunge and, 
and you know put their toe in the water and or to to develop that skill set because it is going to be increasingly important for them um, in the future as, as the the way we work changes. Uh, I think there's going to be quite radical change coming to the architectural discipline over time, and so these are skills that that every architectural student I think should be should be acquiring. Um, that's uh, that's my opinion. All right, and uh, you've also been part of the Revit uh, development team as well, right? And part of BIM as well, right? Um, not really. So, so I was I was um, on the AutoCAD team. Respond. I was sort of software architect for AutoCAD verticals, so AutoCAD mechanical, AutoCAD architecture, um, AutoCAD MEP. So I w- I was responsible for these AutoCAD based products for a number of years, um, but I I, I wasn't. Actually, I wasn't involved directly in Revit. I've worked mm. a lot with the Revit team on on different things, of course, but not um, not directly as part of Revit. So even even my so my knowledge of Revit is very very limited as well. Even as a, as a, as a product user, um, I you know I I think it's probably fair to say that those of us who are working with uh, our products APIs mm. often have a, a, a rudimentary knowledge of the of how the products are used, but we have a much deeper knowledge of the APIs. Um, now, I don't work with the Revit API either, so mm-hmm. I don't even have a deep knowledge of the API, but it is interesting that that very often the people who are either working on the software or using the APIs to, to automate activities um, don't have a deep knowledge necessarily of, of how the product is used. So that's always enlightening for me to, to speak with customers and understand uh, how, how those things work for sure. And uh, do you feel that a lot more customers are uh, switching to Revit and uh, because Revit is the BIM software, right? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, be- I I certainly get the sense that there is a there is a trend towards uh, people using Revit. Um, I don't follow the the specific numbers. Um, AutoCAD remains to be an extremely popular product, and not just in the the. The architectural space, but for other other disciplines as well. So, you know, I I, I do think that 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 AutoCAD has a very strong future, irrespective of whether um, it ten, it proves to be, uh, you know, Revit ends up getting more you know share of the pie than than AutoCAD. Uh, I do think that that AutoCAD is going to be around for many years to come. It's mm. got a very strong foundation, and what's interesting is that the AutoCAD team. Um, are actually pushing the boundaries in terms of driving forward uh, the use of co- cross-platform technology inside mm-hmm. inside Autodesk. So, so we're now building AutoCAD with the same code that we build AutoCAD for the web as well. Um, so it's the same code that's that's running inside your browser that's been translated, of course, through Imscript um, to to WebAssembly. But ultimately, it's the same logic and the same lines of code that are that are working. In your browser than are working on the desktop, so it's these kinds of, of innovations that are really interesting that are, that are often being driven by the AutoCAD team. Um, very smart bunch of people. All right. Uh, so Autodesk products, uh, most of these products have a larger market share compared to your competitors. So do you feel that? Uh, yeah, and uh, off late, you guys have been. Uh, charging quite a lot, right? So do you feel that, especially for uh, economies like India and other countries, do you feel that uh, some products need to be charged at a lighter price so that it's adopted widely? Um, I That's, a, that's a, a, an interesting question. I don't 
know the answer because I'm not really involved in pricing discussions or, or even very aware ultimately of the price of our, of our products and, you know, how it varies between different, different geographies. Mm. Um, I would say that, that there is some intent behind our move to, um, you know, essentially provide technology through subscription and rental is that there is this possibility to use the software for shorter periods of time mm-hmm. without necessarily having that upfront cost, mm-hmm. um, which does give people the freedom to, 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 to use it in a more flexible way, ultimately. Now, that, of course, that isn't necessarily for everybody, um, but it is the, the, the prominent, you know, the main way we deliver our software these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, pricing wise, I'm really, I'm sorry. It's not really a question I'm, I'm knowledgeable about. I can't really get into that. Um, though I would hope that having it available for shorter periods as a, as a, as a tool w- would help alleviate some of those concerns. But you know, again, not really my area. All right. I'm uh, sure you've heard of Blender, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So Blender is pretty much an open source software and uh, it's out there and it's for free, right? So do you feel that even some of the Autodesk products can, uh, you know, uh, be more open source and help uh, people, you know, make their own versions of uh, products? So um, we are very interested and engaged in, in open source in some areas. I, you know, I don't think we're quite as, as far ahead um, as the likes of Microsoft have done in a really radical adoption of, of open source. And, and I think that they're really sort of shining a light in that area. But we are um, doing more with open source. You know, we have more projects on on GitHub these days mm. than, than in the past. You can go to github.com slash Autodesk and you can see a number of, of projects that are being contributed to there. Um, we obviously make heavy use of open source software as well which is another thing mm-hmm. um, and do our best to contribute back to those projects individually when we can. Um, but yeah, I, 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 you know, I, it's an interesting one. I would never necessarily have said that, um, that CAD as a space um, made necessarily sense to, to mm-hmm. open source, but I'm, I'm not really um, an expert in the, in dynamics around open source and why it could be interesting. I've always felt that there needs to be a certain um, uh, interested uh, set of people who can focus on on solving a particular problem for it to be open source. And it's very possible that that uh, critical mass of people are there inside the CAD developer community. Um, But yeah, I mean, our model is, is for the moment largely focused around proprietary technology, admittedly. Hmm. And uh, do you feel that these days web development tools, like a lot of full stack developers who try to create tools on the, on like Chrome or something where you can go and pretty much create, right? So I think Autodesk Forge or there's some few products of Autodesk, which is part of the web development, right? Yes. Yes. So I actually spend probably most of my time, I would say most of my time working on um, using Forge to create, uh, well, you know, I don't, it's not a term that I especially like that much, but to create digital twins using, mm-hmm. you know, using Forge. So integrating IoT data from that we're capturing from buildings into a 3D context mm-hmm. inside the browser. Um, so that's where I actually spend most of my time. Um, it depends on the week. You know, some weeks I'm I'm doing more with generative design. You know, but mostly uh, it's around using Forge. So I, I, for me, it's a very compelling. Um, future. I think the platform itself is 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 very interesting. I'm I'm finding it's it's 
allowing me to do a lot of uh, cool things that, mm. that I wouldn't have expected um, being able to do inside a browser some years ago. As I said, also AutoCAD has got code running inside the browser now. Um, the same code is on the desktop. So we definitely have, you know, a lot going on in the in the SaaS or, or you know, um, cloud development space. All right. And uh, could you briefly tell us for the benefit of our listeners about Autodesk uh, Forge? So, yes. So, I mean, it's, there's, there's a number of services inside Forge. The, the, the main component, at least the one that I've been using primarily is, is the Forge viewer. So this is a, a, a viewer that allows you to, to load 3D models from 65 or more um, different file formats. So these file formats um, get translated to the format that the Forge viewer uses, which is you know kind of an internal format. Um, they, they get translated via a translation service that's part of Forge. So the model derivative service will translate your models from you know Autodesk formats, but also you know Rhino, SolidWorks. Mm. Siemens NX, Step, etc. Whatever the the, the the CAD format is, it can, gets translated and can be worked on, um, or visualized and 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 have applications work with it um, inside inside the Forge viewer. So I'm often creating Forge extend, extensions for mm-hmm. the Forge viewer that do different things. Um, and then there's so aside from model derivative, there's also APIs that allow you to access these models from BIM 360 um, as mm. well as other sort of backend repo- repositories. So there's a you know document management API that can allow you to pull out the data. Um, there are a number of APIs that are specific to BIM 360 as well. Um, I'm not so familiar with those because I'm, I'm I'm not really working on that side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 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 there's a number of those that exist. There's also and this is really an interesting area for me is the the design automation API. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this allows you to effectively run an instance of Autodesk software on the cloud without any user interface. Mm. Um, so you can have a headless AutoCAD running in the cloud performing some batch operations or you know or activities that you don't want to consume an AutoCAD license to do. Um, so you can have that running in the cloud doing that. The same exists for Revit and Inventor and 3D Studio Max. Um, but this whole orchestration of um, Autodesk software in the cloud is really uh, is really interesting. Um, and it's, it, it also kind of allows you to build, so it allows you to build web apps that do interesting things with our you know file formats, for example. So you could have a web app that is essentially a configurator inside the Forge viewer. You can drag and drop. Um, you know, components inside your in, inside your 3D model, perhaps you know, furniture inside a room, and then and click a button and have that go out to the design automation service and generate a Revit file for you from wow. nice. from those instructions. So, so that's the kind of workflow that you can implement with with all these different building blocks. Um, so, just to sort of give an example of the kind of thing you could do, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, sounds really interesting. Um, uh, yeah, you spoke about generative design, right? So some of the tools that you guys use are refinery and all that, right? Yes, yes. So, so Autodesk has a couple of um, different flavors of generative design, if you like. So, so mm-hmm. one exists more in the the mechanical and sort of manufacturing space, mm-hmm. um, and that's integrated inside Fusion three hundred and sixty, and this allows you to to create. Um, 
parts for you, you know you define your forces and you, the goals for your design process mm-hmm. um, inside the tool itself and then this a cloud-based um, service will then go and generate a lot of different solutions for that particular design problem and 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 show them to you inside fusion 360 so that's the 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 workflow that the that was used for example for the lightweighting for the back mono you know it's something that i i think we've we've chatted about as well mm-hmm. so this is this uh, lightweight um uh, supercar in in the uk so we we had a project for them where we lightweighted their um, their alloy wheels, effectively. I, I was not involved in that project. I should say straight away, okay. but, but I have chatted with the team who worked on it. Um, I tend to be more focused on the AEC side of the house when it mm-hmm. comes to generative design. So working okay. with with Dynamo to to build up parametric models, and then using Refinery as the optimization engine that drives those models and generates um, designs that that. Uh, satisfy uh, or, or either maximize or minimize different um, different metrics mm-hmm. that, that you use to measure the quality of the designs. Um, so for me, that's super interesting. I think that this is um, a, I, I wouldn't say it's where things are going. It's a direction that, that is very interesting to explore. And I think that customers are going to find um, for certain types of problem are going to find it a very compelling way to um, introduce automation into their workflows, not mm. not to the extent of dis- displacing jobs. Um, I, you know, that that's an, a whole other topic. But uh, you know, I am actually quite a firm believer in in um, the the sort of tasks that this workflow will automate and make and 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 reduce. So the sort of jobs that you know the, the, the sort of activities that most people don't want to do anyway and yeah. there will of course be change um which is also coming back to that point why it's really a good idea to to be studying coding mm. and understanding how you can introduce automation into into your different workflows mm-hmm. uh, because there, there's a lot of opportunity related to that and i think that, that that is going to be increasingly important for people to to get a handle on for their careers in the future yeah, absolutely. And uh, looking at your career, like 20 years back, you're working on uh, static software and now it's become more dynamic where you're exploring generative design, machine learning and all that, right? Yeah. So I'm not, I mean, I'm not directly working with machine learning. I mean, I have colleagues in, in the team who do and we're interfacing with more, you know, more neural networks, et cetera, from, mm. uh, you know, over time, we're going to see that more and more. And, and this is actually where it's interesting because I'm working on this, on digital twins, which are really around, um, capturing uh, as you know real-world performance data in a database mm. in order to explore and understand what has been happening historically with those designs, whether it's a you know a building or, or a bridge or a car. Um, now, over time, I think that the data that we're collecting there will help us train um, neural networks and sort of mm. uh, surrogate models that we can then use to to pull into uh, generative design. In a, you know, as that process is happening, in order to to create designs that are better suited for the for the real world performance that the the that their predecessors, if you like, have 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 been you know put under, or have have, have the 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 stresses that they've had to deal with, or the the you know ultimately the the performance they've had to deliver in the past. So that's a really interesting area for me is this connection between. 
digital twins and, and data that we're capturing f from the real world and how that can be used to, to help design the next generation of, of um, product that, that meets, their, meets those needs. Right. And I think that machine learning is probably going to fit in there somewhere in terms of being a, being a, a good way to, to, to uh, summarize and to um, essentially influence the generative process. Um, and do you feel that the rate at which you guys are uh, growing and uh, the kind of technologies are coming in that architects would soon get replaced? I don't believe so. I, I think that there's... Well, now is an interesting time, of course, because the the um, the, the rate of of change and progress is is going to be impacted a lot by what's happening in the world mm. at the moment. Yeah. This is a looking, you know, it's it's hard to look at it through the short term lens. Where it may be that I mean, and I'm not talking about architecture specifically, but you know, people working in hotels and restaurants and um, and in entertainment. You know, they're going. A lot of people will be losing their jobs because of lack of demand, um, as as everybody hmm. isolates and and doesn't go anywhere. It's it's difficult to to sort of step out of that and talk about the long term, um, which is the long term reality is that we need more buildings, we need more infrastructure, we need more hospitals. These things need to be to be done, and we have hmm. fewer people who have the skills. To do to do these jobs hmm. um, over time as well, because you know when you know just can't it's, it's hard to find the people. So I think ultimately these tools will allow architects to do more um, with less resources. You know they can hmm. ultimately solve, work on more projects, deliver more projects, and and do the more interesting jobs or, or play a more interesting role in those projects, curating the results of the, the algorithm rather than necessarily going in and working through loads of design iterations themselves that, that get thrown away um, is, is really sort of describing the task that needs to be solved, have the computer work on it, and then perform an active role in curating the results and, and deciding which path to go down from there. Uh, so I, I do think that, that, I mean, for sure, people who want to do very repetitive, um, and I don't like the word menial, but, you know, menial tasks, if you like, mm. um, people will struggle if that's the role that they want because mm -hmm. anything that, that can be automated uh in the future is likely to get automated mm. um at least anything that can easily be automated so i think that that anybody who's really looking for a very safe steady um mundane uh repeated repeated role is is probably going to have to think about things differently or be pushed to pushed a bit outside their comfort zone yeah, absolutely. And do you think that uh, talking about uh, the times we are in now, do you feel that remote working would be something which a lot of companies would uh, consider? I would hope so. I mean, so so Autodesk right now, everybody's working remotely. Hmm. Um, well, actually, I say that, but I, I believe that there are still a few offices that are open for people to go to by choice. Mm -hmm. um, but it's but. The, the policy is that people work from home. Um, 
you know, but at the same time, it's easy for that to happen inside a, inside a software company where we have a lot of remote workers. I mean, I'm a, I'm ultimately a remote worker mm-hmm. um, anyway. So for me, this doesn't change anything. But, you know, we have all these procedures and systems in place that support remote working, which makes it a lot easier for us than perhaps some companies that don't have that in their DNA. Um, but I, I think the world is going to look very different coming out of this period. I think that, you know, we've had, we haven't had a crisis quite like this. You know, we have had crises that have stopped us from traveling that have kind of, you know, thinking back, there was SARS, there was some impact with SARS. Um, September the 11th, people Mm. weren't traveling for a few weeks. It wasn't like major, but there was, there was a period of downtime there. Um, the, the the Icelandic volcano eruption, mm. that also grounded a lot of people for a while. But again, not because of health concerns necessarily and people being worried about their own health and safety. Uh, whereas this is very different. And I think that, that it's going to, and it's going to be a protracted enough that it's going to drive some b- new behaviors that probably will stick for some people or for some organizations as well. Um, I'm actually encouraged that, that we may end up traveling a lot less or finding alternative ways to, mm. to, to, to hold meetings and to in- engage with people uh, that, that, that does reduce the amount, the impact that we're having on the climate. So for me, it, it's, it, it'll be an interesting, um, interesting thing to note how, how much data, first of all, we collect on, on the impact of all these things stopping, you know, mm. how, 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 different is the world because of the lack of emissions uh, for people commuting and traveling for business. Um, and then, and then what snaps back afterwards, you know, how do, do we go back to exactly the way things were, or do we use this as an opportunity to, to think about things differently and, and mm. to, to maintain things that, that are in our own best interest in the long term? Yeah. In a way it's also good for the planet, right? But uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, yes. I mean, I say absolutely. Uh, it is good for the planet. It's not, you know, the, I'm not saying that, that this is a good thing overall yeah. uh, for the human race. I think it isn't. It's, it's a, and, and it's, it's very, very scary, but I, I think that there are some silver linings to the cloud that we can, you know, consider. Um, yeah, absolutely. I want to uh, talk briefly about AI and how you guys have uh, leveraged AI. Is there any AI in Autodesk right now? There is definitely. You know, we have um, uh, we have a, a, a team in research that is focused on on AI. Uh, we also have within various product groups uh, people researching the possibilities of using AI and delivering them to customers. Um, now, I'm not an expert on mm. this particular area, but if I'm not wrong, I, and I want to say it's called Construction IQ. But there is a service today that that is um, driven by AI behind the scenes. Um, I, I do think that it's an inc- it, that it's a very compelling and interesting area. I think um, it's it's good for certain classes of problems. I don't think that we're going to see Skynet develop anytime <laughs> okay. soon. I think that you know, so it's, I, I think that that it's it is good for. Um, Problems where we have, uh, you know, a lot of existing data, and this is one thing that Autodesk has, admittedly, with the projects from customers, etc. We have a, a large um, uh, amount of data mm. that, that we can use to sort of train 
models that do that help customers. Now, now the, the important thing to note is this is not um, we're not talking about uh, deriving insights from one customer's data and giving them to other customers. Uh, this is about us being able to sort of de- 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 deliver value back to customers who have entrusted us with their data. Uh, so our customers pay us for for the ability to use our software. We're not looking for other ways to monetize this by you know deriving insights that we can essentially help you know help uh, either. Well, you know, I, I, we're not we're not selling it to other companies. We're not using this data for nefarious use. So we're being very careful about that. Ultimately, there's a lot of trust um, from our customers to us, and we have to 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 make sure that we respect that and and deliver value back to them based on the data that they're entrusting us with. Yeah, talking about uh, power, like a lot of the unicorns uh, these days have a lot of like Google and Apple. All these guys actually can change the world if they want to, right? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, and and I think you know there there are. You know, the, the, with data, you have to be very careful. It's a series of kind of small decisions that can lead you down a path of ended up ending up doing things that are quite scary. And I, and I do think that that is, to some degree, what has happened with Facebook um, um, and Google over the the last few years. Is you know the, the the especially when I mean I'm not talking about overall, but there are certain things, um, particularly around advertising on Facebook. And I want to say. Um, you know, engagement on YouTube is another one that, that drives me crazy, is that the way that the algorithms ultimately have have allowed people to um, to propagate false information mm. because it's much it, it's more compelling and interesting to people than 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 real real information and truth. Um, and so I think that the, the between those two platforms, you know, I, I I'm very concerned with with how um, the desire to maximize uh, revenue has has led to uh, them unduly influencing um, elections, etc. And I, it's, it is a bit of a scary world. Yeah. I think that, that, that you, you have to be careful with data. And I think my right now, I feel pretty good about the way Autodesk is is facing this and understanding that the the opportunity and the value that we can deliver to customers but when but not in a way that that is is going to compromise that trust that we have from our customers all right and uh, yeah right now it's like a really good time to be alive and i'm sure like it's like the pinnacle of uh, being a human being so where do you see the company or where do you see us going to in the coming few years what technology could impact us the most Oh, that's an interesting one. I mean, I, I, you know, I, you know, I, I, I have a couple of hammers in my toolbox in the sense of digital twins and generative mm-hmm. design. So mm-hmm. my, everything looks like a nail that can be hit with those two. I think sometimes I don't want to. It's, it's hard for me to step back and look more broadly at the overall space. But for, for me, I think there is a lot of. Um, yeah, I, as I kind of mentioned earlier, I, I think that, that this combination of collecting uh, data on the on the performance of things and then helping that drive generative design is super interesting mm-hmm. as an area of, to explore. And overall, uh, a future where we where we we have a more data driven approach to design. So I think that for me is something that's really interesting. I'm I'm, I'm not you know I'm not a futurist. I'm not a visionary. I. I, I 
tend to I don't think of myself as one anyway. I tend to work on 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 particular projects and people may think, wow, he's always head, you know, thinking about the future. But it, it's it's I'm I'm very poor at making predictions about hmm. uh, the way the world is going to 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 look in ten years. For me personally, in ten years, I, I you know I'd be very happy if I was doing the same work that I'm doing now in ten years. I love my job. Hmm. Um, I get to meet so many interesting people um, and and interact with them and talk to them about technology. That that you know, I, I, if Forster still wants me, I hopefully will still be around in ten years or doing something similar for a for a different company. Um, but yeah, that that's I you know I, I very much enjoy what I do in terms of where Autodesk is. I I don't have a crystal ball. Um, I, I you know I think there's the the company has a strong future. I, I hope so. Um, and you know that's probably as much as I can really say about it. And you're also into a lot of workshops. I think you've been part of AU Las Vegas for uh, many years around, right? Yeah. So I did. I did miss one in at the end of 2017 mm. uh, because I was traveling with my family on a around the world trip. But I think otherwise, um, we I've, I've been to pretty much AU pretty much every AU since around 2000, early 2000s. Um, and I've presented at, at many or most, well, most of them really. Uh, so it's, it's, I, for me, AU is a very, um, <laughs> it's a very interesting time. It's, it's extremely tiring. You know, it's, mm. it's, 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 it's a very intense experience. And I think this is true for anybody who goes to AU, um, you know, just being inside a, a conference center, um, you know, with the dryness of the air and the, the lack of daylight, uh, you know, for a period of a week, I mean, mm. you do get out from time to time, but there isn't much time, especially when you're, you know, when you, when you, you have your, um, you have so many meetings and, and sessions to attend. Um, so it's, it's very tiring, but at the same time, it's really energizing. You know, you come out of it after a week and your, your, your head is spinning with the possibilities and you're excited about, I mean, for me personally, as an Autodesk, you know, employee, it is super motivating to see all the projects that people are doing with with Autodesk technology and and how how motivated they are about working with our technology as well. So for me, as an Autodesk um, employee, I find it extremely extremely motivating. I think that it's something that if every Autodesk employee could go to, I think it would be great. They should everybody should at least once in their um, in their careers. And and I've been lucky enough to be able to go more regularly. Awesome. All right. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of people applying to Autodesk and uh, it's like a dream come true if they do land the job. So um, what's the work culture like in Autodesk? And also what advice would you give to someone who wants to get into Autodesk? So I, um, I, I mean, I've been here so long. I, it's hard for me to um, step back and look at Autodesk through a different lens. As mm. I mentioned earlier, I've, I've worked at smaller companies, uh, before in, in a part-time capacity, but Autodesk is really my first main job, right? So it's hard for me to, to look at, to, to do a comparison. Um, and, and the culture has evolved over years. I mean, we're also working hard to, uh, for the, for the Autodesk culture to evolve with the company and the needs of our customers in order for us to, to do a better job of meeting their needs in the future. So that is a very active, um, thing that's happening at the moment mm. and it's being 
you know, driven um, within the company, essentially to, to, to update the culture, to make sure that we're not, uh, you know, Autodesk is a very um, comfortable place for me to work because I feel very aligned with, with uh, the, the cultural values that, that we have. Uh, but I'm very interested by the, the, the values that are being promoted more inside the company because I think that they're, they're, they're going to lead to, to us doing, um, yeah, essentially being more customer-centric mm. and doing better by our customers in the long run. Um, so I think that that's really, that's really interesting. If I was to talk about, I mean, I, talking about Autodesk as a, as a culture, I would say that, or you know, the culture that we have at Autodesk, I would say that it's very um, welcoming. I think that people are usually uh, very smart and very um, engaged. And uh, I just, you know, that they, they often are there because they, they, they believe in what our industry is doing and want to help move things forward. Hmm. Uh, and that, I think, is, is, is very obvious with all interactions you have with, with Autodesk people. Yeah. So there are no long hours and all that, right? Oh, they, they, I mean, I've been, so I, this is what we're Monday morning. I spent yesterday most of the day working, um, but because I wanted to, because there's just a, there was a, a particular challenging problem that I felt like working on and, and I'll probably take off time later in the week, especially with the, the kids not being in school, hmm. um, the, in order to sort of compensate, but nobody's expecting me to work 80 hours. You know, if I'm going to, if I'm working extra hours, it's because it's, it's something that, that's of interest to me. Um, I, you know, I, there's nobody that's going to say that, that's going to criticize you for, um, working, you know, well, you know, I mean, there is kind of a minimum, but at the end of the day, it's also about being effective and getting your job done. So, you know, if, if you're getting things, moving things forward and getting things done in, in less time, then all the better. Um, you know, I think you'll be praised for that rather than being criticized for working less. All right. Awesome, Keen. And uh, since you've been part of the AC industry for so long, and uh, since this is an architecture podcast, what advice would you give to young architects or architecture students just getting started? So I would, um, I would take every opportunity you can to learn coding skills. I mean, of course, I'm a coder, so it's my background. But from my perspective, those skills will be extremely valuable to you moving forward. And it could be coding. It could be visual scripting, you know, using Grasshopper or Dynamo or some tool like that. You know, I think that it's important for you to to, um, take the opportunity to learn uh, software development skills because they will – you know, become increasingly valuable over time for you. Yeah. And I feel like every industry also, like every individual should learn some amount of coding, right? Because it would be yes. like an essential skill in the future. Yes. And, and honestly, I mean, I, I've got a computer science background, but you don't need to be, um, uh, you don't need to have studied computer science at university to, to, to be a a coder you really don't yeah back then you didn't have resources right at least now we have all these uh, MOOCs and so many websites now yes and ultimately having the having the domain experience in combination with the the programming experience as well is extremely valuable yeah so i'm i'm you know you asked about my domain experience i don't really have proper industry domain i mean i have from having worked in the industry for 25 years but 
I'm not, um, you know, I'm not an architect. I'm not an engineer. And, and, but I understand my limits and that's okay. But, but if you are an architect or an engineer and you can develop, um, and you can acquire coding skills as well, I think ultimately there are more doors that will be open to you in the long run. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I don't want to dissuade people from starting with computer science, but I do think that learning another discipline, um, first and then perhaps transitioning later on, uh, to do, to do more programming related activities is, is a, is a great way to, to manage your career. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Keen. I think that was pretty insightful and a lot of useful information from this uh, small session that I had with you. Thanks for coming on. Before we end the episode, I'll just quickly uh, jump to the quickfire round and then I'll let you go. Sure. All right. Uh, which book has inspired you the most? Yeah, so that's a, an interesting question. I mean, I honestly find most of my inspiration through science fiction um, because I just think that that is, a, a, you know, a, a lens that allows you to rethink how the future is going to be. So, I mean, I have particular favorite authors, whether it's uh, Neil Stevenson or Ian M. Banks, um, you know, or Alistair Reynolds. There's a, there's a, a number of really good authors out there, um, but I, I actually find... I, I end up reading mostly um, uh, for relaxation and entertainment rather than reading too much uh, for professional work. All right. Uh, what type of music do you listen to? Well, it's a mix. Um, you know, I have kids of different ages, so I tend to listen to what they put on. But a lot of the time, um, I, I, I mean, if I want to go back to my roots, I'll listen to some 80s music. I listen to, I, I, I've always been a big fan of indie rock hmm. over the years. Um, you know, I've had my period with dance music as well, but if mm -hmm. it, these days, if I want to go back to, um, you know, I, I love, I love a bit of dire straits sting. Nice. Uh, there's all sorts of, you know, um, uh, artists from way back I, as I get older, I think this is probably a, a tendency most people have. They tend to go back to music that they listen to when they're growing up. Um, so that's the period that I'm in at the moment, I would say. Awesome. You must've been like part of the 70s scene and all that, right? Yeah, no, not really. I mean, I was born in the, the mid 70s. So I mean, I, okay. I, I, I was I was really an 80s kid by the mm -hmm. time I was kind of consuming music. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, which city would you consider your favorite? Yeah, uh, well, uh, uh, the thing is, there is no there is no perfect city. I mean, I've lived in a lot. I've lived in a bunch of places. Um, uh, Paris was great in some ways san francisco was fantastic as well in others um but if there was one city that i and any in bangalore i had there were some <laughs> things i liked about bangalore too. don't get me wrong <laughs> i shouldn't say that um but where where would i live i mean favorite cities um i you know i i i will say that when i visited new zealand um a couple of years ago i really really loved it mm. so i don't think i necessarily want to live in in auckland maybe maybe wellington or christchurch mm. but i i really enjoyed new zealand i think that was a, a fantastic place um and i think that, that for me that that's an area that i would uh you know in terms of natural beauty in terms of the culture as well uh, i just really enjoyed uh, enjoyed that right and uh, talking about bangalore uh what is the favorite uh, dish which you had in uh, Bangalore? 
Well, so I'm I'm half Mangalorean, so I mean oh, for nice. me, you know, I I I, I love Mangalorean cuisine. Um, I also, I don't eat meat. I do eat fish. So I, mm. I love um, fish dishes, you know, whether it's at Mangalore Pearl or Kudla. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, Mangalore Pearl is a pretty good uh, restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I you know, I, 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 pretty much anything there. Um, you, you know, I, I, I also would, on a daily basis, when I was ending, living in, in Bangalore, I'd, I'd, I'd get a tali. Um, at lunchtime, mm-hmm, nice. which was, uh, I, I, for me, that's just like a fan, the, 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 the best lunch you can have is, is a simple South Indian tali. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Um, what does a daily routine in your life look like? Well, so I don't really have, um, much of a routine in the sense that, uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, between travel and other things that that sort of disrupts your your routine typically but on on a weekly basis i mean I, I work from home so i also have a lot of freedom and flexibility around my work hours and because i often have meetings in the evening i'll t- take time in the morning so that i don't have a too too long a day um so i have a lot of you know that from my side the ability to manage my my schedule myself um is really good i really love it um, on a weekly basis, you know, on Mondays, it tends to be a little quieter. Tuesdays, I make sure that I do, I usually play football on Tuesday lunchtimes with oh, friends, nice. and, you know, the rest of the, so, so I have like two sporting activities a week. Um, Thursdays is the next one. I play a, a, um, a sport called floor hockey or uni hockey. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do that on Thursdays. Uh, and then in the winter, um, I often go snowboarding at the weekends because that's one thing about living in Switzerland is you have access to the mountains. Nice. Um, so, so that I, I do try and maintain a certain level of activity because if I don't do sport on a weekly basis, then, um, you know, I, I, I do find myself getting lethargic and, and getting frustrated with things. All right. And you, you do follow football? Ah uh, no, I play football. I don't follow football, so okay. so there's a difference. I'm not actually very good at watching sport. I find <laughs> it quite frustrating to see other people play. I'd much rather be doing it myself. I, I mean, I can see the the interest and the value in following um, sport and you know supporting a team and uh, engaging like that and becoming a fan. But I just have never quite found the time to invest in it. Um, you know, so, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I actually don't spend time watching sport as far as it goes. <laughs> all right. But I'm sure you'll uh, watch some amount of Olympics and all that, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean the big events. So I do watch the world cup. So the world, the football world cup, I'll watch and the Euro, you know, yeah. European championship, the, some Olympics, um, you know, it really depends on the discipline. Um, but yeah, not, but mostly I think, you know, if, I, if I'm going to watch anything, it's one of those big, you know, every four years yeah. kind of. Events. All right. Awesome. And my last question to you is where do you see yourself uh, 10 years from now? Yeah. So 10 years from now, um, I mean, I, I, as I kind of mentioned this a bit earlier, I, I could be doing the same thing um, as I do now. I just, I, I, I think over time, you know, being where I am in my career overall, I, I'd, I'd like to, uh, I mean, I have a, a fairly extreme amount of flexibility in my role as it is, you know, I have a lot of freedom and flexibility to focus Mm. on projects that are interesting and engaging and, and, you know, so from that, that I'd like to maintain, but, but possibly balance it with 
with other activities externally as well. So I think over time, that's probably where I'd end up um, going is is having the freedom to to continue engaging on the things that I like to at Autodesk, but then perhaps have um, have more time to do work with non you know non nonprofits mm-hmm. and NGOs and doing doing things that are perhaps um, you know give a give bring meaning in a different way to your life. Uh, so I think that that's probably where I'd be where I'm head. Thanks for listening to the Ah Young Podcast. We're still building the community. Please share this knowledge with someone you know who could benefit. Just send them to archeon.com where you'll find our free newsletter and for more podcast episodes. Search for the show on any major podcasting platform. Don't forget to subscribe where you're listening right now. And if you liked it, leave a rating or review.